biblical justice series. In fact, we're in our last week of it, and um, I've appreciated it. I've appreciated many of the conversations I've got to have with, I've been able to have with uh, many of you um, asking questions, seeking clarity. Uh, there have been a couple of times where I've said things maybe that were misunderstood or, or that were, that I actually said incorrectly or something along that lines and just seeking to walk through this, that it's an important issue. We're, we struggle with it. It's all around us in the world. Uh, people are calling for it and a longing for, um, justice and, and they want answers and trying to figure it out. And we, the church need to know how to talk about these things. Uh, and so that's what we set out to do, uh, really nine weeks ago. This is, I think the ninth week of the series. That's what we set out to do, and, and I hope that we've been helpful in it. Uh, if you have more questions and, and concerns and just want more information, there is going to be one of the equipped classes next term is a Christian uh, ethics class, and so taking many of the principles of biblical justice and then how do we apply that in life. So what, as, as I think about race, racism, uh, abortion, uh, all the different ethical issues we face uh, gender identity issues, sexual orientation, all those things, how do we as Christians seek to walk in them, address them, uh, be, be compassionate while at the same time seeking to honor the Lord and his word? So, so that class will be, be part of our um, equip series next uh, term, we, knowing that we just couldn't have, there was no way we could have addressed every issue that could come to mind in these nine weeks. But we wanted to lay a foundation and then seek to grow as a church to continue to just grow and understand our role and our work in the world around us. So this last week, we're going to review everything. So if you haven't been here, there will be some things that, that this will help you just kind of see where we've been and, um, and, and what we're doing. As I'm walking through it, you can go ahead and get your Bible open to Revelation 7. That's where we're going to be studying today, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. But we've been setting out to define and describe biblical justice and seek to, to really understand it. And so what we've done over the last nine weeks, here's the review. Biblical justice will always recognize God is God and we are not. We are his creations. He is our creator, right? He is sovereign. We are submissive. He he is all-powerful. We are dependent and needy. So recognize God is God and we are not. Biblical justice will always recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. All of us, black, white, uh, uh, male, female, we're all equal. We are we are equal, we equally bear the image of God, regardless of, of socioeconomic standing, regardless of anything about you as a person, we are all equal before God as image bearers, uh, as people who bear his image. Uh, biblical justice will always declare the sinfulness of sin, its offense against God and harm against humanity. And so, so biblical justice will always recognize the scripture calls, what it calls sin is sin. It will understand that it's an offense against God and sin is not something we affirm because it's, it's good for you. We, 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 don't, we, we don't affirm it because we recognize it harms us and hurts people. So biblical justice will always declare the sinfulness of sin. It's offense against God and harm against humanity. Biblical justice will always relieve as able the burdens of the persecuted and hold accountable the persecutor. We may not always have means to do that, but if we're able... And the love of God is in us, especially for a brother or sister in Christ. John tells us, 1 John three seventeen, that if, the, if we have the means and it's a brother or sister in Christ in front of us that has the need, the love of God compels us to help one another. And so, so biblical justice moves that way. Uh, biblical justice will always rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness to bring relief. These, 
the, the, the working of justice, the doing of justice, the ability to love like we've been loved, the ability to, to be compassionate and merciful the way we've, been, we've received compassion and mercy, the ways that God has been faithful to us that enables us to be faithful to it is all sourced from our relationship with him. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's God's work in us that we're to practice in the world. Biblical justice will always rely on that. Biblical justice will always prioritize the truth of God's word to equip God's people. We don't deny truth. We, we, we recognize the necessity of truth, all truth, right? Like not just not just, not just scripture, like we need to know the truth of circumstances. And so if a trial is happening, like the, the, just what's going on with Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't know how many people watched, but I know there was lots of people watching it live. And uh, the, the, the people who are on the jury, the best thing for them is to hear the truth so that they can make a just judgment. If they don't hear truth, they'll never be able to make a just judgment, right? They'll make judgments based on uh, lies. And, but scripture is told, it, we are told that it actually produces justice in us. The, the God's word, the truth of God's word equips God's people to live just lives. So we will always look to that. Biblical justice will always demand the necessity of God's word, the truth of God's word to equip God's people. Then we turn to facets of biblical justice, like different aspects of it. So, so looking at it from the, from the rectifying justice idea or the idea that there's injustice in the world and we're called to right the wrong. Um, that's not an individual responsibility necessarily, but as a people, there's, as peoples, there's, there's people that are given responsibility to rectify injustice. And so governments are supposed to be just, and they're supposed to restrain evil and reward good and, and punish the wrongdoer and, and, uh, and honor the, the, the good person. Uh, back, another facet of biblical justice is primary justice, the one in which we're all responsible to carry out. We're all responsible to act justly. The idea is that the behavior that, if it was prevalent, this is the way we kind of defined it back then, behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice unnecessary. If we all live just lives, we would have no need for laws, we would have no need for judges, we would have no need for courts and juries and all of those things. There would be no need for any kind of rectifying justice because there would be no injustice committed. And, 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 and we know that in some way all of us fail in that primary justice uh, sin or injustice is endemic. And so that moves us to the next facet of biblical justice, which is personal or individual responsibility. We're all responsible. It's easy to point the finger and blame everyone else. It's easy for us to say that it's everybody else's fault. But we have all been victimized and we have all victimized. We have all oppressed and we have all been oppressed in some way by other people's sin. It is true, and we can talk about that. Uh, we, we, we can point it out in your life, and we can point it out in the ways that you've hurt other people, and, and it just that's the reality of what we do, and we're all responsible. But we've also recognized that not only are we all responsible, but as we gather and as we build organizations and systems, that there are systems of injustice in the world that we actually use to bring harm or to, to benefit ourselves in some way. And so the ones we pointed out were uh, porn, the pornography industry is a system of injustice. It's actually legally protected. It's, it's not like anybody's out there trying to end the work of pornography. In fact, I think you'd have a fight on your hands if you sought to end the work of pornography. But there's a whole system that's harming people, that's doing injustice against people who are in the work and people who are taking, uh, uh, consuming the work. 
and it's legally protected. Abortion is a systemic injustice. Not commanded to go get an abortion, but it's a systemic injustice that we actually protect the right to take another's life. That is a systemic injustice. That's the reality of it. So so there are ways in which we systemically and and organizationally organize. There's all kinds of of, of, uh, grassroots type systems of of injustice that aren't governmental. They're not protected by law necessarily, but that we, we unintentionally form these groups and these perspectives and we actually begin to perpetrate injustice against one another. Those are systems of injustice. They do exist. They're, they're a real thing. <clears throat> and so we, we saw that in the scripture. We saw Jesus condemning the whole pharisaical system because of what they were doing to the people, uh, to the Jewish people in the temple. And, and then, then we asked the question, why does justice matter? And, and, and there were two answers we gave to that, two weeks that we looked at that. And the first was because God's people, having been justified by faith, are called to live just lives in faith. We need to be able to speak to these things. We need to be able to live in a broken world, in an unjust world. We, the church of all people, having been justified by faith, are called to live just lives by faith. And so that's the, that's the role we've been given in the world, and, 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 and we're responsible to do that. Uh, and so we need to understand what it looks like, what it is, and we need to be able to, to do it. But also, the, 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 it matters because biblical justice is the product of a life transformed by the biblical gospel. I'm not talking about health and wealth gospel. I'm not talking about social gospel. I'm not talking about all the different little gospels that we try to, to, try to cr- create. And the, the God's redemptive work through the, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, that gospel message produces a just society. We don't get to see it in its fullness now. We're going to actually deal with this today. We're not, we don't actually get to see it in its fullness today. But by the gospel, Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, His Father, the the Holy Spirit, all working together, the triune God working together in the gospel, are presenting and preparing and producing a just society. Biblical justice is a biblical gospel issue because it is a product of the gospel. We need to understand it. We cannot just simply simply go about life and, and hear people talking about justice and not have some understanding where, where they're straying from biblical justice. Because if we don't understand it, we're going to run into it and we're going to think, oh man, we've got to be a part of that. No, we need to understand what biblical justice is so that we can live in step with the biblical gospel. So as a result, we have responsibilities. In the last two weeks, we looked at this. Our responsibilities as Christians to live together in the world, focusing first on the church. There's a priority to be given to God's people We've seen that in a number of places, but it starts here. If we're not forming that just society, if we're not practicing that just work that he's given us to practice, then how are we any different than the people in the world around us? What do we really have to offer them? Because we can proclaim a gospel, but if they don't see it doing anything, why does that matter? But more than that, there's a responsibility we have in the world. And so as Christians, and when this is what we looked at last week, as Christians, we have a responsibility to live just lives in an unjust world. And there's ways in which we're called to do that. We're responsible to. So, so that brings us to the place where we're going to summarize everything. We're going to close it all down with one last view of justice and biblical justice. And that's looking to the future. Because if we're not careful, if we're, if we're not careful, we're going we're gonna to pretend... 
And we're going to gain this idea, or we're going to develop this idea that in some way, this is all going to work out right now. And we're going to overrealize what some people would call it overrealized eschatology. We're going, to, we're going to get upset that it's not working out exactly right now when that's not ever what we've been promised. But in Christ, our future, a just society, and the future that we have is certain and it's secure. And that's what we're going to look at today. To, to give us hope and keep us from wavering in hopelessness, becoming aware of all the struggles and just becoming apathetic and moving to despair and just giving up. So that's, that's the study today. So we're going to read the scripture, we're going to pray, then we're going to dig in. All right. Revelation 7, pick it up in verse 9. After this, so John has been laying out um, uh, a bunch of the, the, the things that he's seeing, this, this vision that he's experiencing and these scenes, if you will, of activity that he is seeing. So after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, every week we come to this, this moment having read your word and considering the just, it is the truth that, that equips us for every good work, that disciplines us and trains us for righteousness and makes us just. I, I pray, Father, today that as we study and consider what is to come, that we will be just, uh, just made ready, better prepared to endure and, and filled with great hope for the day that we get to see your promises fulfilled. Help us now. I pray that your spirit would just lead us into truth and help us to see and understand what you'd have us to see and understand. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So there's a major problem in the world today, in in most of the conversations happening in the world today about justice. Massive problem that, that most of these people having these conversations, and many even within the church, don't recognize. They are absolutely human centric and think nothing about what's to come in the life to come. Almost all of them, if you think about the struggles and about what we're trying to fix and the problems that we're facing, almost all of them are seeking a solution for the horizontal problems that we face in the world. In most of the conversations going on in the world today about justice, people are seeking to stri- they're, they're striving to be on the right side of history without ever considering being on the right side of eternity. You think about it. 
what we're trying to fix, whether it's, whether it's get the right politics in line, get the right systems and, and laws in place, whether it's dealing with the issues of race and racism, gender identity, all of this stuff. It's, it's, it's all this horizontal, human-centered, make my life now what I want my life to be, and then I'll consider that justice has occurred. Vast majority of the conversations, most of them have no view of the life to come. I think partly because most of the people having them have no view of the life to come. But just to, to exemplify this, on, on, on one side of the conversation, you have people giving the same, same arguments that have been being offered for generations, same tired old arguments that, that, that have been having, that, that have been being had for generations. And on one side of this conversation, you have, have these people who are arguing for personal responsibility and, 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 and emphasizing, hey, just make good choices. Don't repeat the, the, the sins of the past. We always got to look forward. We got to take care of, of, of life now. We can't just be living back there. We got to keep pushing forward. We're just always progressing, always getting better, always correcting, always improving. Now, on the other side of the conversation, you have people pointing to the harm that they've experienced from others, and, 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 and some of that's individual, but also some of that's unjust systems and unjust ways that the world perceives them and those like them. It's not just a racial issue, although it's a major part of the conversation. It's not just a racial issue, but it's a gender issue, male-female issue. It's, it's a gender identity has become a gender identity issue. That if you don't recognize somebody for, and, and, and use the right pronouns today, you've committed an injustice against them. It's not, it's not just about, uh, about identity, though. It's economic, rich, poor, um, body shape, right? Like all of these things, all, the, all, all this stuff, if you, if you listen to what's going on in the world around us, it's, there's people who are feeling shame because they're either too big or too little, too tall or too short. It, 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 it's everywhere. Everywhere, you, if you just listen, everybody's got some way in which they're, they're recognizing the world is, is treating them not according to who they are, but according to who they're assumed to be. It's all over. But the solutions offered are always coming along those same lines. Take control for yourself. Do something about your circumstance. You seek to change and, and ignore what others are saying. Or the other side of the solution is join alongside others and, and demonstrate to the world that you've been mistreated and, 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 and demand their affirmation and their recognition and their compliance with your demands. Here's the problem. This has been happening over and over and over again throughout history. And I think what's really happening in our culture, and the reason I think that it's, it's reaching the point that it's reaching is because we are so aware now. We are so hyper-aware of what's happening in the world. And we are so hyper-aware that none of these solutions are actually working. None of these answers are actually fixing anything. So for Republicans... Six years ago, they may not have got the president they wanted exactly. They may not have voted for Trump in preliminaries or primaries or, or, or um, whatever. But there was financial progress and there was things that, 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 that he did that people appreciated. Not everybody. We know not everybody. But the whole time it's going on, there's a whole group of people that are letting us know, letting the whole world know 
that they can't stand him, that they don't like him. So two years ago, Democrats get the president that they want. And there's things. If you listen to that, to, to, to that side of the argument, to the Democratic side of the argument, the de- 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 Democratic position, huh? Man, well, he's getting some stuff done that we want him to do. But the statistics demonstrate that more and more, even his own party is dissatisfied with, his, with Biden's performance. And there's a whole group of people out there letting the whole world know. They're unhappy with Biden. This is not about whether Trump's better or Biden's better or whether, whether, whether either of them were more just than the other. I've, I've made the point regularly through, from, from here, from this pulpit, that regardless of how I vote or, or my own political perspectives, none of us have any moral high ground when it comes to republicanism or democratism. I mean, we just all, injustice, sin is endemic in our world. We're all broken. <laughs> and there's no moral high ground to be had anymore. The point I'm trying to make is, the point I think that we all need to see and recognize is that amidst all this awareness and amidst all these screams for justice and amidst all this recognition that something's broken and something's not right and I'm hurting and I'm, I'm desperate for help and I just want justice. I just want life to be what it's supposed to be. That there's either an opportunity to meet them in that moment, to meet people in that moment, as Christians with a real solution that actually makes a change for the future, or we continue to add to the growing hopelessness that gives way to despair and despondency, self-loathing, and further desperation, which if things go the way they do, typically in history, will reach a breaking point, will come to a point of equilibrium after that, to just progress back to another breaking point. We can either approach this, these, this, this season of life, this time in our culture, in our country, making the same arguments that, the, that, that, that one side does, the, the, the side arguing for systemic injustice, the the, the Ibram X. Kendi's, the Tanahashi Coates, the, the Robin D. We, we can either join them in that and say, well, you know what? That, not everything they say is true, but there's this enough truth there. I can get behind that, and I'll, I'll deal with that truth. And, and we can get behind that. And The problem is, is that their solution is never going to give way to justice because unjust people will never develop a just system. I think America is a good example of that. If you think about where we started, the American Revolution, I'm not, I'm not arguing the justness of the war. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm a patriot. I love America. I, I think that it's, I'm, I'm glad I'm born here. I'm glad I, I'm able to, to, to benefit from all the, the, the just the, the abilities that we're, opportunities that we're given. I, I'm so thankful for it. I don't want to dismiss that in any way. I don't want you to hear me saying that. But if you think about where it starts, it starts as an act of civil disobedience. Right? Because they didn't have just representation, yet they were being taxed, and they wanted, they wanted to be represented. Some were pursuing religious liberty, but not all. 
Right? And, so, and so the Revolutionary War and the movement towards the, the writing of the Constitution, which I'm so grateful for, which I think is, is one of the best and greatest historical documents that we, that we have, I think it, it, it followed if we could agree to it and adhere to it, that I think as a, as a, as a people, <clears throat> we'd have the greatest opportunity to actually enjoy a just society apart from Christ. But what have people done with, with it? Where are we at today? Unjust people have developed unjust systems that bring harm and hurt to people. And that's been happening since the very day the Constitution was signed. And that becomes clear when Trump does run and he uses the the slogan, Make America Great Again, which didn't bother me any. I'm thinking, yeah, there's things I want changed about America. I, I, I want some of what I remember the golden age to be. I'm old enough to just barely remember watching Leave it to Beaver and, and this idealistic 50s era, you know. I didn't live in it, but it was idealized. It's the ways that we've gone from that. It's, man, just... But unjust people... Never develop, an unjust, uh, never develop a just system. And so some people hear that make America great again, and they're wondering when in the world was America ever great? That solution is never going it's, it's never going to prove to be just. It's never going to arrive at justice. I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue it. It's never going to arrive at justice. On the, on the other side of that conversation, we have the Larry Elders, the Glenn Lowers, the John McWhorters, and the Coleman Hughes who are, who are saying true things. And in fact, if I'm to be honest, I, I listen to what they say and I find it much more agreeable than the other side. But their true things are still wrapped up in a bunch of untruths because they're not building their arguments from the Bible. They're not Christians. In fact, at least two of them would flatly tell you they're atheists. And they reject the truth of the scripture and they think that people, that their view of, of religion is just, uh, just the practice of the same thing over and over again. But unjust people, the problem with their arguments of meritocracy and personal responsibility, that it's never going to work because unjust people are never going to be able to make themselves just. No matter how much responsibility they take. People remain unjust. And so here we are as a church and we're stuck in this place where we're hearing these arguments and some of us, unfortunately, are more influenced by these arguments. We need to hear. We need to be reminded that these arguments don't work. These solutions have been tried time and time and time again. And every time they've been tried, they prove to to work for a generation or two. It might make you feel like you're on the right side of history, but then never put you on the right side of eternity. And here we are, right here, looking at this passage from John's, it's actually Jesus' revelation to John. Jesus letting John know what's to come. And John says, look at this. This is the justice that we all long for. He doesn't use the word, but all the, all the, all the, all the things are there. All the components are there. And it's all rooted in one thing. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the cleansing that comes by his blood. It's the one solution that actually brings justice. And we have it.
it's ours. We know it. And we can cling to it. So the, the, the whole point of this, the, whole, the, the main point of this passage, this message, I should say, is only the justice purchased by the blood of Jesus finally and fully solves the problem of injustice and secures a just future for his people. Only the justice purchased by the blood of Jesus finally and fully solves the problem of injustice and secures a just future for his people. So, so here we are. We can hear these arguments, and there's maybe points that we could agree with on one side or the other but neither is enough. Neither is enough. And, and so here we are. We have an opportunity to look again and just be confronted with the reality that Jesus Christ, our God and Father, Holy Spirit, together, the triune God working to, to, to do for us a work of justice so that we can be justified and live just, not just for a generation or two, but forever and ever. Now, it, it's, it's, it's fair to say, and it needs to be said, just so as we step into it, you recognize that there's lots of debates and questions about this passage. And, 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 and as, 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 as an example, like, who are these people? And, and the elder gives that answer to John in verse, uh, in verse 14. He, he gives him an answer, but then people debate that answer. Who are these people? And, and, and we could talk about, this, about, I think there's at least three main views, possibly four, um, but from the people I read from, I came across several different perspectives about who these people are. We could talk about who, uh, what, what, who are they, not just here, but in relation to the passage right before it, because John brings up these 144,000. There's a numbered group of people, and then there's a numberless group of people. Who are, this, who are the numberless group of people in relation to the numbered group of people? We could talk about the Great Tribulation. And what is the great tribulation? And if you're a dispensational, you already know. You're like, oh, I know what that is. Seven years coming right after the rapture, great tribulation. If, if that's your view of the end, there's about three others that might say, ah, I don't know if I agree. Is it this, this specified time at the very end just before Christ returns? Or is it the time, of, time that we live in now, that the, as amillennials would demonstrate, that we're that we're living in this tribulation now, waiting for Jesus to return, make all things new. We could discuss those things. We could debate those things, but that's not going to get us to where we need to be, I think, with what John is trying to show us in this passage. See, there's some things that are really clear here. If we'll push past all that stuff, there's some things that are really clear here that demonstrate that Jesus Christ has and is and will establish a just society that will live in justice forever and ever and will never be touched by injustice again. So, so four things I think we're going to look at. And not, I think we're going, to, we're going to look at them. The union, diversity of God's people finally realized. The right recognition of God's glory finally and forever given. The final and full cleansing of our sin. The life we have, looked, we have to look forward to that will never again know any kind of injustice. Number one, only by the blood of Jesus will we finally be united as one people of God. The world has tried this. They've, they're never going to overcome the divisions caused by our sin or, or God's judgment against our sin. It is impossible. And so while we're seeking racial reconciliation and racial unity, if we do this apart from the gospel, we just need to recognize we're fighting a losing battle. There will never be unity or reconciliation of any kind apart from the working of Jesus Christ. And we see right here that there's this way in which we open it, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
There's this representation of, of people that spoke every language, people from, from every tribe, every, every people group. It means people who are governed in communism, people who are governed in Marxism, people who are governed in capitalism, people who, every financial system, every political system, every color of skin, every language spoken, every way in which we've been divided, John's saying those people will be represented. There will be a united diversity. It will be union without uniformity. We won't look the same. We may not smell the same, but we will have a common united uh, standing in Christ. We've tried this over and over again, but we never get to unity. We get to a sham, we get to a facade, we get to a perspective of unity, but it always breaks down. And I think, we all know this is true, but I think that this is a, a, a result of who we are. That intrinsically we are sinful people. And we can trace this all the way back, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve are at the end of Genesis chapter 2. They're, they're naked without shame. There's no division between them. They're, they're united. No division. No, no separation. Serpent comes in, deceives Eve. She eats the fruit. Adam turns eats the fruit with her. Genesis 3, 7 through 8. This very first thing that happens after they eat the free, fruit immediately as a result of their eating the fruit, their sin... The eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before they ever spoke to God, before God ever pronounced a curse, before any kind of anything else happens, immediately the woman and man who were naked without shame, suddenly shamed and hiding and covering up from one another. Well, what happens next? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instead of running out to meet him and walk with God in the cool of the garden, they hid. God questions them and walks through this process in which they begin to blame. Oh, God, this woman you gave me. So it's not just Eve's fault. It's God's fault for giving him the wrong woman. But then Eve says, but this serpent... God demonstrates that they're all responsible. He brings a curse on the serpent. He speaks uh, uh, consequence to the woman and to the man. And in Genesis 3.16, we see that it's not just the consequence of our sin, but the reality of God's judgment that we're working against if we try to unite apart from the gospel. He says, Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. That's not what I'm getting at, but you know that's true. It, It happens, right? If you've had a child... You know, it's painful. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, now here's the phrase, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he shall rule over you. Even just that reading of it, you recognize that there's a way in which there's not mutual connection. Right? Your desire shall be be contrary to your husband, he shall rule over you. There's a lot of people who talk about that phrase, and they they say, well, the man's going to rule over the woman, he's going to be heavy-handed and and that's, I think, true. There's a way in which the man's going to rule over her in, in, in a way that's not beneficial and helpful. But what that dismisses is the fact that in, in Genesis chapter 4, where God is speaking to Cain, he uses that same exact phrase about sin. Sin's desire is contrary to Cain. It doesn't want his good. And so what God is demonstrating is that as a result of their sin, as a result of his judgment, there will be tension between husband and wife. Are you married? Is marriage easy? You know why it's not easy? 
Because we're sinners and God's judging sin. You know the hope we have for marriage? Ephesians 5 tells us in Christ, because of what Christ has done, that's when we have a hope for a, a blessing, a marriage, a good, godly marriage. But we don't have to go all the way to Genesis, Ephesians 5 just yet because Genesis 11, 6 through 9, we see this begin to work out just a little further. You can see it happen in Genesis 4 where Cain kills his brother. But it's in Genesis chapter 11, 6 through 9, God has, God had the, 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 the world has flooded, it's gone away, there's table of nations, Genesis 10, God commands people to spread out over the earth again. And there's a place in Genesis 11 where they decide to quit spreading out, they build, decide to build a city and make a name for themselves, build this tower to the heavens to make themselves prominent in the world, make themselves known, and in a sense, make, make themselves God. And God comes down, this is his answer, Genesis 11, 6 through 9, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from here over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. They wanted to stay together. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted, and, and they were using everything they had right? Image bearers of God doing the very things that in some ways that they were created to do in rebellion against the very God. And he comes down in an act of judgment. He divides them. He gives them language that they can't understand one another and he disperses them. So all this work that the world is out there doing, trying to overcome all the distinction, all the division, all the differences, doing it apart from the gospel is always going to end in futility. But in Christ, and because of the blood of Christ, we will be united around him forever. It's the only hope, it's the only way, the the only way in which we ever see the unification, the reunification of all these peoples. He's spreading them out all over the earth. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches the first Christian message? They hear it in all of these different languages and people from all over the region, from, from all kinds of different languages, all kinds of different ethnicities, all kinds of different peoples hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and 3,000 people are saved that day. And that's just a taste. It's just a sampling till we get to this passage in Revelation where we see what God has been doing through the course of time. And all peoples from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues, God has been at work saving his people from every corner of the world. And together we are one with them. And it's beautiful because he's doing this by the blood of Christ. It's not even something we're having to do ourselves or having to fight for on our own. Let's just fast forward now to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this is something he's doing, and he shows us he's doing. Ephesians 2, 4, 16, or 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace. Who made us both one. Now this is talking specifically about Jew and Gentile. But there's a reconciliation work happening. All the Gentiles of all tribes, tongues, nations being added to the Jews. right? For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, has made peace. You don't have to make it. It's yours. If you've come to him and been cleansed by his blood and made pure, 
He has added you to his family. You have peace. We have peace. And we have peace with all of God's people. But we are responsible to maintain it. That's why in Ephesians 4, the very first command, I therefore, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain, not make, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The peace that Jesus has made, we're now responsible to maintain it together, living together. And if we're going to extend it, how is it ever going to extend, if not first and foremost through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, people being added by the one who's made peace. It will not happen any other way. Every other system, every other solution breaks down at some point. This will last forever. Only by the blood of Jesus will we finally be united as one people of God. Second, only by the blood of Jesus will we finally worship the Lord as he is due. This is beautiful. It's absolutely just extraordinary to me. Because it's not just that all these people are gathered. That's pretty impressive. right? It's hard to get this many people in a room to agree about everything. In fact, I probably already said something that's made one of you mad. Maybe not. I hope not. I don't want to do that. But at least you might disagree with me. But, but, but look at what they're doing here. It's not just that they're together. That's pretty astonishing. <laughs> they're gathered around the throne of God and crying out with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels. And so now it's not just the people, right? Like it's all these people from all these places, all these languages, all these ethnicities, all these, all, all these groups that have come together and they're singing this worship. But here now they're added to the voices of the angels, to the elders and these other majestic heavenly beings. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Finally, God getting the worship that he is due. No longer we're, we're wrestling against these, these divided devotions and these divided uh, uh, priorities. He's finally getting the worship, the, the, the adoration, the recognition, the, the honor, his glorious nature is due. The world's solutions to this will always fail because they never address the core issue of injustice. They never address the core issue that all injustice is rooted in a rejection of God being God. Worship of man instead of God. Worship of creature rather than creator. I would just remind you of Romans 1, 21, chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where we studied injustice is endemic. It's part of the nature of mankind. But in it, we saw that at the root of all injustice, at the root of all unrighteousness, and the compounding unrighteousness and injustice, we saw that it's the result of us rejecting God and His worship. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it's only through the gospel that then Paul lays out, beginning in Romans chapter 3, where he begins to show that there's justification by faith in Christ. That there's a reception, a a work of God in our lives to to regenerate and restore and and conform us to the likeness of Christ. That we come to Romans chapter 12, where where Paul writes, Now, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
It's through the gospel that God is finally restoring right worship in the world. And it's, it's in the end when all these nations, all these peoples, all these tongues, and all these, all, all these ethnicities, and, 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 and all these diverse groups of people are gathered around the throne. No longer divided in their attention. No longer struggling against heart idols or, or statue idols or any kind of idols. They're looking at God and giving Him the worship that He is due. And that's why the church's mission isn't about just making this world a better place to live, but making sure that God's name is known. So the solution that the world offers seeks to solve a problem that's not really the problem, it's the symptom of the problem. If you're getting headaches every day of the week, and I, I'm almost hesitant to use this because maybe this is you, but, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but if you're getting hes- headaches every day of the week and all you do is continue to take Tylenol, there's a doctor in our church who would tell you at some point you probably ought to see someone and quit taking Tylenol. Is that right? That's right. Because you're dealing with the symptom, not the not not the issue. And we're covering up symptoms. And, 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 and so the world has been trying to slap these band-aids on the gaping wounds of injustice without really dealing with the issue. Our issue is our sin, but our sin is rooted in the fact that we rejected God and we do not worship Him, we do not honor Him, we do not give Him thanks. But in the end, by the work of the gospel, we will be a people gathered around His throne, worshiping Him for him forever and ever. And so to that day, till that day comes, I agree with what... Uh, uh, Greg or Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert write in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. That's a long title, sorry. But the quote says this, The mission of the church is to go into the world, make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, gathering these disciples into the churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. We have to address this issue. We, have to, we, we aren't doing justice. We aren't going to ever arrive at justice if this is where we, if we don't start here and don't address these issues. Together, we as a people are calling other people to be tuned, to be, to be attuned to the glory of God and to see His glory and worship Him. And that's what unites us. I appreciate another quote. I don't have it on the screen, but it came to mind earlier and I just plugged it in here. It's from A.W. Tozer. He, sp- he speaks about uh, unity in the church uh, be- being wrapped around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and he, he, he writes this in his book. Um, uh, what's the name of it? <sighs> Pursuit of God. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Think about that. Pretty profound. I, I'm not a piano person, but it seems strikes me. Oh, there... That one's going to sound like that one because of that fork. Anyway, sorry. They are, one by, uh, they are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? You see, all this effort that we talk about and we give to, and we emphasize unity, we emphasize community. We don't get there by striving for community. We get there by honoring and living for the glory of God. And that's why the world's pursuits of justice and solutions that they offer, personal responsibility or develop the right system, they're always going to fall short. 
They're never, but because they don't ever tune anyone to the glory of God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, we will finally worship the Lord as he is due. Third, only by the blood of Jesus will we finally be saved and cleansed from all injustice. Over and over in this passage, we see this clothed in white robes demonstrating purity. Right, the, the washing, they, 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 they washed their robes in the blood of Christ. They've been purified. That, that's the idea. The, 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 the thing is, is that, yeah, in some sense, yes, right now, you are as holy as you will ever be. You are as pure, you are as sinless. There is a way in which God has taken care of all of your sins, past, present, and future. And it was done through the blood of Christ. In this, in this sense, there's three tenses of salvation that we often talk about. We don't necessarily mention them. But in this sense, in this past tense sense of salvation, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Every ounce of penalty against your sin has been paid for. You carry it no more. It is not yours. It has been taken away as nailed to the cross. Romans 8, 1 through 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's been done. It's finished. It's taken care of. There's a present tense way in which we are continuing to be saved. Because every one of us know in practice, we are not as holy as we could be. We are not living as righteously as we could live. We each struggle with sin. But in this present tense way, we are still being saved from the power of sin. Right now it's happening. He's conforming us to the likeness of Christ, if you will. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give you power to live free from sin. Right now, in this present moment. But there is also a future tense reality that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is a process, the process that's happening right now. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. That's happened. No condemnation. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a day in which every last believer in Jesus Christ will step into glory and their robes will be washed white and, 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 and the mortal will be put away, the immortal will be there and there will be no desire, no leaning, no, 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 no need, no longing for sin. Because only by the blood of Jesus we will finally be saved and cleansed from all injustice. And these people, these, these, these people, these multitudes of Every name, tribe, nation, tongue, every people gathered around the throne, gathered there with absolutely no sin weighing them down, which leads to our last perspective. Only by the blood of Jesus will we finally live in a world untouched by injustice. And we'll actually be able to be there because we will be made just, perfectly just, never to commit another injustice, never to receive another injustice. And this is where we see it. So here are these elders, therefore they... They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne and will shelter them with his presence. Think about that. He's everywhere all the time. But they will know his presence in a way we don't currently know his presence. There will be a tangible, visible way in which you see you are with God. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor scorching, nor any scorching heat. The stuff that was set wrong at creation when, when Adam and Eve sinned, all the stuff that happened, the, 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 the ground being cursed and not producing fruit but producing thorns and thistles, all of that hurting, all of that pain, all that struggle, all that strife, all that toil is going to be put away. Hunger no more, thirst no more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Again, presence. Imagine what it would be like to actually walk behind Jesus. To be able to see him with your eyes. To be able to go where he goes. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know how you hurt. I don't know what the last thing that hurt you was. I don't know the last time you shed a tear in pain or suffering or some sort of mourning or some sense of injustice that you've received. But you'll never have to do it again. You'll never feel it again. And it's not ever going to happen by the solutions we can offer in this world. It's only ever going to be made possible by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. So listen, I... There's so many things and so many practical ways that I could turn and say, no, this is what we need to go do. Listen to the churches as Jesus speaks to the seven churches in Revelation. Listen to the, to, to the warning he calls out on them. Listen to the ways that he encourages them. Listen to his commands. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about all these other things. Seek first the kingdom and all this will be added unto you. But maybe we just need to be reminded again the mission of the church. So one last quote from DeYoung and Gilbert to close out this series and call us as a church to a purpose, to a way in which we strive for justice in this world and call others to live just lives in this unjust world. It is not the church's responsibility to right every wrong or to meet every need, though, they, though we have biblical motivation to do some of both. We're not ignoring that, but it's not our priority. It is our responsibility, however, our unique mission and plain priority that this unpopular and practical gospel message gets told that neighbors and nations may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Because how amazing would it be that as we enter into glory and stand alongside all the nations and tribes and tongues, that the people that we know and love get to stand there with us looking at our Savior giving him all the worship that he's due, never being touched by injustice ever again. I want to be busy about doing that. I want us to be busy about doing that. And there's no other solution that we have to offer. We can go downtown. We can feed some homeless and hungry people. We can seek to house and help people with drug uh, addictions. And and, and those are all good things. And I'm, I'm not saying let's not do that. But as we do those things, we must also be and prioritize the preaching of the gospel that gives people not just a solution for the here and now, but for eternity. Let's pray.